Welcome to the Veterinary Business Matters Podcast brought to you by Oculus Insights. Here we will discuss topics related to veterinary business management. From small to large animal, this podcast strives to give you the insight and tools to help you improve your veterinary business. Oculus Insights, supporting businesses where great people want to be. Hi, I'm Mike Pownell, and welcome back to the Veterinary Business Matters Podcast brought to you by Oculus Insights all part of our COVID-19 Veterinary Resilience Guide. Our goal is to really help practices navigate through this COVID-19 pandemic and come out actually stronger and well-positioned for our new world. However it's going to look like, uh, it's going to be different. I'm really pleased to introduce uh, a gentleman I got to meet at the Ontario Veterinary Medical Association Convention. We had booths that were sort of close to each other, and we were introduced by a mutual friend. And I just think what his business does is really, really not only really cool, but really necessary. So I'd like to introduce uh, Jesse Ryder uh, from Reflex. So Jesse, welcome. Thank you very much. So Jesse, tell us a little bit about Reflex. What is Reflex uh, and what does it do for vet practices? So Reflex is an IT services company that specializes in veterinary practices. We've been doing this for about 17 years now. Uh, We really manage anything in the clinic that has a plug attached to it. Uh, We manage all the IT infrastructure, integrations with software, integrations with hardware, basically take the mystery out of IT and just kind of manage it, make sure things run smoothly. So we manage risks, data integrity, uh, just make sure everything runs in a nutshell. Yeah. And I, and I would imagine this is a growing business because as we become more and more digital, risks, data integrity is becoming more of a necessity for sure. Yes, absolutely. And and while when we started, there were still a lot of clinics that are were paper-based and there still are some, but more and more uh, everything is electronic. And the more you can do electronically, the more you depend on it, the more risky it becomes when there's an issue. And it's continuously changing. Yeah. And so one of the things that we were talking about just before we started recording, and I know when we had dinner a couple of months ago, we're moving into more of a technology-based uh, vet practice. And so I, I imagine the risks are even going to be becoming even more increased as time comes along, and particularly with what's going on with telemedicine. And so one of the questions I have for you, and you work with a lot of practices. And are you just working in Canada? But I, I think you're also working in the States too, aren't you? Yeah, also in the US. Yeah. So you're, you're all across North America. What are the biggest challenges that you see facing vet practices right now with the things that plug in? I love how you describe that. Traditionally, the, the issues, well, I guess it's more than traditionally. So the data security and securing your networks is, has been an issue and will continue an issue. You can't live without being connected to the internet these days. And the moment you connect it to an internet, you're putting yourself at risk from all sorts of nefarious players online uh, who are trying to break in. That, that's just a reality of life. It, it's not new. Banks have been dealing with this for many more years than, than animal hospitals, but it, it, it's just the way it is. And so one of the, the, the major challenges of the clinics is the more you're dependent on the internet, you know, the risk, which means you've got to make sure that you're protected. Uh, the, the threats coming from the internet keep on changing and getting increasingly sophisticated. And so it, it's not like you can put in something, you put in a lock on a door, now that's going to protect you for the next 100 years. You know, we're looking at shorter time frames, and you've got to keep up to date with the types of risks and, and, and threats that are out there. 
And so the people that do, you know, we'll, we'll talk about some words and maybe we'll have you explain the malware, ransomware. What do they care about vet practices? You know, we're small businesses. We're, we're not like a town or we don't have deep pockets. Why do they like us so much? It's a very good question, actually. Previously, so in the past, malware was completely random. There would be groups of hackers, individual people who would do it just for fun, just for the idea of the fact that they can break into networks. Uh, they would just put out viruses, let them loose on the internet, and they would just go wherever. And if they infect something, so be it. They don't care. At some point along the way, the whole notion of ransomware developed. And it's been around for a while. And again, and it's like anything else, it's gotten more and more sophisticated. But they figured out that they can actually, once they get into the network, destroying the data for the sake of vandalism is one thing. But if they can destroy the data and actually restore it and make somebody pay for the restoration, then they can make it lucrative. And, and once that came into play, then that evolved into uh, cyber gangs and organized crime. The fact that the internet is unpoliced and it's international and there's no way to actually control the, these things from in any location, it just blew up. Back to the questions of why veterinary practices are targets. It, it's really veterinary practices in themselves are not targets, but Banks and military installations and things like that have been aware of the threat uh, for many years and have been doing some things to protect themselves. Things like uh, healthcare, which have always thought themselves, I don't think they necessarily thought themselves as being immune, but it was never really considered a risk because you're not going to, like you said, the animal hospitals are small businesses, there's not a lot of money in there. But human hospitals are huge business. Cities are huge business because they never really invested money in good protection. And if you shut down a city, all hell breaks loose. And they were willing to pay huge amounts of money to get the issue resolved very quickly because they just can't afford not to. And the more they do that, again, the more of a business this has become. So it's more like they're just very opportunistic. They cast a very wide net. And if they catch some vet practices, so be it. Correct. Although. Recently, the attacks have been becoming more and more targeted. So whereas in the past, they would just cast a net, catch whoever they catch, they're starting to get more targeted and going after specific targets and that's who they think will pay. I mean, this is kind of scary and it's daunting because it's, it's invisible. You don't know who's going to attack you. It kind of has a lot of parallels with what's going on in our own COVID-19 environment right now that you know, I, I guess the, the equivalency of social distancing with computers is just shutting down your computer so there's no chance that a virus could be passed on to another computer or the fact that you would actually catch one. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, except while you can socially distance yourself physically, you can't really do that on a network because you're, you're dependent. Right. So what do you see are the biggest things that vets aren't doing to protect themselves? So there are ways to protect yourself. Again, not like anything else not in this realm, nothing is 100% guaranteed, but there's a lot of stuff you can do to protect yourself. So putting better locks on the doors, on the electronic locks on the network doors is very good protection. It's like you wouldn't dream of not having a lock on your front door. The front door of networks is called a router, uh, which everybody has, but they're cheap home routers, which are fine for home when you have one or two computers and you shut it down at night and there's no real critical information there, uh, which costs somewhere in the order of 100 bucks. 
And there are more sophisticated routers, which are really business grade ones, which are on the order of a thousand bucks or more. And they're much, much smarter. They're just they're better doors, better locks. And the main key is that the more expensive ones can be updated and are constantly looking at new threats. So they're inspecting all the traffic as going in and out. And based on the contents, they can detect whether anything is going on or anybody's trying to get in in different ways. So you pay for that, which is why you have the higher uh, price tag. But the cheaper ones, although technically they work, they're only really as good as the date that they were first designed. So if something was designed in 2010 and went on the shelves and you know the stores wide distribution across the world in 2013, you may still be able to pick it up at Best Buy in 2020. Uh, and so you're really protecting yourself now from threats that are 10 years old. And anything that's newer than that, your router has got no idea of what to do with it. So is it the hardware of, of the router that it can't get updated? It's a combination of hardware and software. So there really is no real difference between hardware and software. So the hardware of the router is really just a computer in the right. box. And the software gets updated right. automatically and it's managed automatically. And somebody on the other end, so the vendor is actually looking at updating the software on a regular basis and making sure they're looking at constant threats. So if somebody's doing that, somebody is getting paid to do that, which is why you pay for this. Right. You know, it's amazing. I have a, a router and a home uh, security system, and it notifies me anytime that it thinks that it was a, some kind of uh, spam or malware attempt. And I'm kind of stunned on how often it happens on a weekly basis. As I said, this is just my residence. So I can imagine most vet practices are getting those same kind of invitations or knock on the door, and hopefully they're able to not open the door. What are some of the other general requirements that you would think vet practices need to have to talk about data integrity at their clinics? So the first thing is this router thing, so that's the door. But the second piece that has to come with it is to make sure you've got good backups. So backups is, again, something that everybody's been talking about for years. Everybody knows the concept of it. Some people do it better than others. But just having a lock on the front door is not enough because, again, it does not guarantee. So you got to make sure that if something does happen, somebody does get in, you've got a good fallback position and go back to, to your backups. So, And that's, again, it's, it's very common across the board that clinics don't invest well in backups. The kind of backups that are in place are either a tape drive that came with the server that they bought from the, from the vendor along with the software at some point and nobody ever changes the cartridges or uh, it's often also these external USB drives that you connect in and yes everybody knows you're supposed to rotate them more often than not they're not they're all just it's all just plugged in and yeah I've got a backup it's sitting on top of my server and that's it I plugged it in two years ago the light's still on therefore it's good which is not really the case because you don't know if it's actually doing anything. And not to think of what happens if there's some damage that happens to your facility, you're going to lose that backup thing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so you know, let's talk a little bit about backing up. What are your general recommendations for backing up? Actually, there are multiple points on the, on the backups. One, just like you mentioned, you've got to make sure that you've got a good set of backups that's not physically in the same building. Because again, physical damage, fires, floods, things like that, not common, but they do happen. So you've got to make sure you've got something off site. You also have to make sure that 
you have multiple backup points. And so what we often see, even with the tapes, is you've, you've got a backup, it's connected, and you change it once a day, or even if you do take it off-site, it, it, it's basically every time you're running a backup, you're overriding the previous one. So today's backup is right, overriding yesterday's or overriding the day before. And if something happens while you're doing that, then you don't have a backup from now because you stopped in the middle, but you've basically corrupted your previous backup in the process of overriding the new one. And so you, you've kind of lost your backups while doing it. And so it's very important to have multiple versions of the backups. The other thing that can happen is, especially with ransomware and with the newer uh, types of malware, is they're actually Trojans. And so when you get infected, nothing actually happens. So you, you don't know it. So you've got a false sense of security that everything is okay, even though there's a virus sitting in your backup data. And this virus wakes up at a signal at a certain point of time, either the next day or the next week or the next month, or sometimes it's actually triggered remotely and starts encrypting your data at that point. And so if you don't have a backup of the data from before you were infected, then if you have to restore it, you're restoring the virus, which means you're going to get hit again automatically. And so what's critical in the backups as well is to make sure you've got several restore points. Now, obviously, you, you can't keep a daily backup forever uh, because at some point you're going to run out of space. But you need to have some kind of reasonable uh, set. I mean, maybe keep that one day snapshot for every day of the week and then a few weeks back and a few months back. If you did this with the old manual drives, that means you'd have to have about 20 or 30 different tapes or hard drives and rotate them, which is cumbersome which then means nobody's going to do it. But if it's done electronically, and there are lots of systems that do this, then you set it up, it, it does it, and it manages it for you. The third piece of this, or fourth, <laughs> lost count, is that no matter what you set up, somebody needs to be watching it to make sure that it's working. You don't have to watch it like a hawk all the time, but you need to check it periodically and try restoring the data periodically to make sure that what you set up a month ago or a year ago is still actually doing what you think it's doing. Oh, those are great tips. I'm making my notes to myself because I thought, I think I'm pretty good at my backups, but I'm not 100% sure. So this is definitely something on my to-do list. So we've been talking a lot about ransomware. You know, it's an active threat. I know of a couple of practices, uh, colleagues of ours earlier this winter got hacked, ransomware, everything was destroyed. They had to pay some money to get everything back. So let's talk a little bit more about, you know, ransomware and how, do, you know, we've been talking about protection, but what do you do if you're attacked? Okay, so the, your doors failed. They've gotten in. The first uh, thing you need to do is stop the spread of the virus. So you've got to contain it. Uh, similar to medicine in general, you've got to make sure things are not getting any worse. So you need to disinfect the virus, uh, disinfect all your systems and scan them and make sure that they're clean and that whatever has happened stops spreading. Once that's done, then you need to start restoring from some point. If you have a good backup and all that's in place, then it's just a matter of time. All you need to do is restore it to the most recent one that you have. There will likely be some data loss, but if it's a, if you have a daily backup, then it's one day. Yes, it's a pain, but it's kind of manageable. If, if you've got to go back farther than a day, then you know it's it's a, a week, a month, whatever your most recent good backup is, and 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 then you cut your losses. So you're not actually having to pay the ransom then. So you, if you 
have a good system and good backups in place, you can like say, huh, I'm not paying you and we'll rebuild on our own. Exactly. That's the best scenario. Uh, the last thing you want to do is pay. Right. However, paying is an option. You know, it's, it's the last option, but it is an option if you've got nothing else. The other thing to do before you pay the ransom is ransomware is, is basically it, it's shareware. And so the reason it's so popular is because it's so easy to do because the algorithms for encrypting um, are published on the web, but dark web for sure. But if you want to find out how to do it, just like if you want to find out how to build a bomb, there's probably somebody who's written about it. There are companies that specialize in decrypting your data. So if you got encrypted and the company knows how to decrypt that particular variant of ransomware, you pay them and they will decrypt it. Usually these companies will charge you a sum of money to assess your data and determine whether they can or cannot decrypt it. And that's payable regardless. And then once they assess it, if you're lucky enough to have been encrypted with something that is known, then they'll charge you another sum of money to decrypt all your data. And typically that's part of the initial negotiation. They'll tell you up front, uh, you know, so it would be maybe $2,000 to assess it and another $10,000 to encrypt it or whatever it is. It, it generally depends on the volume of data, but you don't pay for the decryption if they can't do it. So really what you're saying is prevention is the cheapest option by far. By far. Yeah. By now, far. the third option is if all else fails and you can't do it, you can go and pay the ransom. And even that's not simple to do. But again, if, if you have no other alternatives, then you have to do that. Typically, the ransom is paid in Bitcoin and in all sorts of cryptocurrencies that are not traceable which also means it's it's hard to get your hands on that amount of money. It's possible, but it's difficult. And the way that typically works is you buy the currency and it's effectively becomes a code. So you buy the currency in some cryptocurrency bank, they give you a code, you send this code to the perpetrator, they receive it, and then they send you the antidote, which is typically, it's a, it's a small code, which you use to decrypt it. But during this whole process, so the price you pay for ransom really depends on whoever is, depends on the perpetrator. It typically grows by day, but let's say it's two or three Bitcoin. If one Bitcoin is $10,000, that's twenty or $30,000. So you're, you're buying, you know, or, or more, you're buying that money, you're sending it to, the perception is it's a sketchy bank, although I guess it's not that sketchy, but, but like you're basically throwing it in the air, hoping to get the code from the bank. Typically, the cryptocurrency banks are fine. You you, you know they're they're actual respectable businesses, and you, you get your code. <laughs> but then you're sending it to some anonymous email address on Gmail or or something that's like AB one two three, some kind of made up code. You sending them the money. You have no idea if you're going to get a response. And if you get a response and you get the antidote, you've got no idea if it's going to work. And if you don't, there's nothing you can do about it. The money's gone. This sounds like the real life version of a really bad spy movie. Like, oof. Yeah. So many things could go wrong from this situation. Yeah, wow. exactly. Which is why you want to avoid it. And I guess one more thing to add to the avoidance is even if you pay and you get the antidote and it works, now you've got somebody on the other hand who's encrypted you, who knows that you're willing to pay the ransom, and there's nothing stopping him from coming in again. 
That's just, yeah, this is lovely. So now you become a client. Yeah, now you're a client. Returning client. Yeah, great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The cost of prevention and protecting is expensive if, if you compare it to the $100 router. But if you spend two or $3,000 on making sure you've got good protections, it's way cheaper than the tens or hundreds of thousand dollars you have to deal with the encryption. It's like any insurance. And basically what you're doing is that you're buying insurance that you're going to decrease the chance of this happening. And insurance always seems expensive until you need it. And then it was the best investment you ever made. Exactly. You know, we're talking a lot about viruses and infections, but I think vet practices were, were changing now. We have been changing. And one of the things that we all know about this COVID-19 is that it's an accelerant in a lot of businesses. So, you know, I, I know a lot of uh, vet businesses, including my own, you know, we, we use an off-site pack system or we're using some kind of cloud storage for our practice management software. So we, we have been moving to remote uh, storage, remote access, or, or collaborators, I guess, before work. But now that we're getting more into telemedicine, I guess that opens up a whole new potential areas of entrance. So can we talk a little bit about, or, or a lot if we need to, about how telemedicine is changing our security and how ill-prepared we are for some of the consequences that may happen because of this? So telemedicine Conceptually, it's not new. It's um, it's been around for a while. It's taken a while to to gain traction. And and yeah, absolutely right. It's prime time now. And I don't think even after COVID settles down, in whatever shape it's going to settle down, I don't think telemedicine is going away. It's going to stay because it's got plenty of benefits. And security obviously is a big problem with that as well. So there are multiple ways of doing telemedicine. And the bottom line is, at the moment the jury sell out on which ones will stick, uh, you know, which which players will stick around in the telemedicine provision area. There are clinics, I guess, that, that use, I want to call them home-cooked, but it's kind of a combination of different things for telemedicine, like using Zoom or using Google Hangouts or, or Microsoft Teams or things like that for the actual telemedicine consultation. Uh, but just like email, none of those are very secure. Zoom has had some highly publicized security issues over the past time, over the past few weeks, I guess, because, and again, because of COVID, because all of a sudden everybody's using them. And that in itself is is both a good and a bad thing, because the fact that they're well publicized means that Zoom is actively working on fixing those issues, uh, which means, okay, so it's not perfect now, but six months from now, it'll be better. It's not going to be perfect, but it's going to be better. Yeah. And they've hired a pretty well-respected security consultant that has a lot of integrity. I've been reading up on this guy that uh, within Silicon Valley and the tech community, and I think it was a good move on Zoom's part to get this person in. Yeah, and and they just bought another. From what I understand, they bought a security company. Uh, how well they integrate it is, is another question, but 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 at least they're looking at it, and, and sure. because it's highly publicized, yeah. you know, again, it's a good thing. They're not going to be able to misstep either, and nor do they want to. They, I mean, they want to obviously fix this because they have a big lead in in, in the game. Sure. And Google and, and Microsoft Teams, they all have some kind of security issue. Some are better, some are worse. They're all working on it. it technology itself has been around. But again, it's, it's definitely getting pushed now well beyond what people expected it to, which, which is a good thing. So that's going to be around. The other types of telemedicine are using uh, systems such as SmartVet uh, and another 
providers that are facilitating the delivery of telemedicine. So the telemedicine consultations themselves is really just video consulting. But the the other tools, the aggregate tools, allow you to do the bookings and the payment processing and all of that through these booking sites. Uh, SmartFit is just one of them. And again, it, it's got popularity now because it was there and everybody needed it. And again, the jury's still out on how, how well these things will, will survive. But it, it does facilitate all the transactions. And doing transactions through companies like that at least gives you the security of the actual financial transaction. Whereas if you do it through over Zoom, it's exposed. And so your the actual transaction would be exposed or potentially exposed. Right. So you're a fan of these dedicated apps then? I am. I, I, I don't think we're there yet in terms of what they can do, and they'll obviously evolve more. But yes, I am a fan of them. Okay. As we're looking at you know where this business is going and what people are doing now, what are you know one or a th- couple of things that you you wish practices would just stop doing now? Like if you just you had a magic wand and they just would just folks, you can't be doing this anymore. What would those be? <laughs> So the the other piece that goes along with telemedicine, and even without it, is the remote access to the clinics to write your notes. Because the telemedicine, all these telemedicine apps, again, they facilitate the actual exam and and consultation, but all the medical notes still need to go in the medical records. And the clinic will use whatever system they're using, which is fine. I don't really want to change any of that piece. But People will want to access these things remotely, and they do, and they've always, which is fine. But the way to access them remotely, a lot of clinics, again, the cheap out because I can use TeamViewer or I can use some, some other of these softwares where I install it in a workstation, and effectively anybody can log in. It's a security risk. And, and it's a security risk also because it's, it's difficult to manage because if I have the same kind of system or similar system installed on two, three, or four different computers at the clinic, I've got to make sure all of these things are up to date from the security perspectives. It's difficult to manage. Uh, if I have an, one of my associates is or associate doctors working for me now and uh, they have access and then leaves to go to another clinic or leaves or there's some kind of fight, then it, it's difficult to to start locking things down because what often happens is that everybody uses the same password and the password is easy because, well, you know, back to your original point, well, I'm a small business, who's going to be interested in breaking into me? So my password is welcome or one, two, three, or, you know, the, 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 the classic passwords that everybody uses. That's one thing I wish they wouldn't do because... With these smart routers, they actually do give you the ability to do a proper VPN with proper user management through them. And then once you have the VPN to the clinic, that secures your channel and allows you to control who can and cannot access it. And you can change passwords. And if people leave, uh, it's very easy to, to change. Once you have the VPN, then once the VPN is engaged, then you can connect to your practice management system. And just do it in a more controlled fashion. Great. Any other tips that you wish people just would stop doing? Nothing really more than, than what we've talked about. Is security is the biggest one. And, and as an IT company, it's it's yes, we make money from this, but it's it's not 
you know, I wish people would stop doing it. Invest in the good things and don't throw money out the window. So I'd rather everybody invest in equipment and hardware and processes to secure themselves than spend money on consulting to fix problems that were preventable to begin with, because that nobody really gains from that. So as you're looking at, you know, I know you're sort of looking in the horizon and there's a lot of new things and this profession is changing and technology will be a bigger and bigger part of our changes. Are there any future risks that you're seeing on the horizon? Maybe it's not going to happen until next year, but, or, but you know, you, you probably can see what's going on in other industries or some of what some of these bad players are starting to get into now. Is there anything we need to be started to think about now that will affect us later on? There's a lot of push uh, to move to cloud-based systems, such as EasyVet or EVet practice, and moving stuff out of the out of the clinics. It's a false sense of security because you're saying, okay, well, I have nothing more in the clinic. Everything is on the cloud. Therefore, it's not my problem. It's somebody else is going to look after all my security. The flip side of that is, yes, somebody else is looking after all my security, but if somebody breaches that, manages to get in, which they will because any or will be broken into, you should assume it, the damage can be much bigger and you have much less control over it. And so I'm not arguing against that because everything is going to cloud. I mean, I think that's not that's unstoppable at this point. The technology industry goes in cycles. So it went from centralized to distributed and now it's going back to centralized. It'll likely go back to distributed afterwards. We'll see what happens. But it's just something to be cognizant of that the fact that it's going to cloud being on the cloud is not the be-all and end-all. It has its own challenges and risks. Right, right, right. Well, this has been an earful of information. Is there anything we should have been talking about or discussed that we haven't? Because it's just this seems like a lot. I've just been taking a lot of notes because, I'm, I, as I said earlier, I thought our business was pretty good, and we probably are, but I'm just like, I, I want to check in on this. I want to check in on that. So I've enjoyed this conversation, but I want to make sure that we've covered everything that we should be covering. I think we have. And I think the only thing I want really to add to this is get professional advice. I really recommendation to everybody to get some professional advice. Don't think you can do this all on your own. There are professionals in, in every industry. And just like you won't, I wouldn't go into surgery to try to try to do surgery on my own by looking up a video on YouTube. People should treat IT security in the same kind of manner. There are professionals out there who are trained in this, who do this all the time, who can help prevent a lot of mistakes. Yeah. And I think that is, if there's a theme is that a lot of what we're encountering are preventable diseases. And if you take the right measures with the right people, you're never going to eliminate the risk, but you're certainly going to reduce significantly the risk of catching one of these things. Exactly. Opening up your door, like it's Halloween, letting everybody in. So Jesse, I really want to thank you. This has been uh, eye opening. I will put a link to your company in the podcast notes. I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you very much. I enjoy, enjoy the chat as well. At Oculus Insights, we care a lot about animals, but we also care about the health of the veterinary profession. Our goal is to support veterinary businesses around the world by helping you clear your path to success. <laughs>